Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host and my dear old dad's taking the day off. They're up actually in Northern California right now visiting my niece who's having a birthday. Happy birthday, Ayla. And we are co-produced and very grateful to my friend Tristan Drew. And, uh, you know, on each podcast app. I'd love it. It really helps us out. If you go in there and give us a rating and a review, say hi, uh, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We uh, try to post good articles and stuff, and we're doing more things to engage our community. And I will not delay any further because I want to get to talking to my pal, Dr. Samir Yadav. I'm really appreciative that you came in. Thanks, Samir. Nice to see you. You too. Yeah. Uh, Samir is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Westmont College, not too far from me, actually, in the Santa Barbara area. Uh, Having earned a master's degree from Yale Divinity School, his doctorate in theology and ethics from Duke Divinity School. You're now now our third from Duke Divinity. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Actually, Amy Laura is also a Yale. Uh, She got a doctorate from Yale, but uh, teaches at at Duke. Um, Samir is also prolific writer. It was hard for me to uh, even scratch the surface. Uh, His dissertation being adapted and expanded for his first book, The Problem of Perception. We might get into uh, some books he's he's working on now, but just numerous articles uh, published, papers in in seemingly endless number of academic and theological journals. Um, He's also multilingual. I didn't know this, uh, but understands Aramaic, Greek, Hebrew, French, German, and uh, I hear you're studying Navi in anticipation of the upcoming Avatar <laughs> movies. <laughs> True story, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, there's some important uh, literature there to be mined. So. <laughs> it's good stuff. Well, first of all, how are you? How's your family? How's everybody holding up over the last year? Oh, thanks for asking. Um, we're good. It's, uh, I mean, compared to a lot of people, um, we, we got nothing to complain about. I've got stable income um, and uh, I've, uh, the ability to stay home and quarantine and all of that is something we have the luxury of being able to do. Um, it does make for interesting um, home life because I also have a, I have a, a autoimmune disease and I'm uh, immunocompromised in, in some ways. And so I have, I have left my neighborhood exactly twice in the last year. Oh, wow. Um, and, and my kids are staying home because so, so they won't be vectors or anything with their staying home. Um, for their schooling, and that makes for some um, some added intimacy uh, of family life. Same time, chaos in trying to teach remotely um, and and do work from home. You know, um, my office, my bedroom, uh, trying to get things done. That has been a challenge. So yeah, basically, it's just been uh, being at home with the kids and uh, the the very the real possibility that you're going to have a 
a five-year-old banging on the door or, or, uh, <laughs> or, or break out between my, my uh, two boys or whatever. So that's not an unlikely scenario these days. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, our problem child is our third dog, actually. We, <laughs> you know, our, our kids are, are a little older. So Savannah's down in San Diego. The boys are old enough to uh, know when quiet time is, but you know, Charles Mingus, the third, he's, he's the crazy dog. So <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's by the way, that's partly Jay Cameron Carter's fault that we named him that. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yeah. Jay's that's responsible great. for me getting into jazz and uh, yeah. Apparently this dog had an affinity for, for uh, Mingus as well. So you and I have uh, a similar general trajectory in common. You, you were raised by uh, your, your parents are immigrants. They're Hindu. And at a certain point you became a Christian, a fairly, and uh, from what I remember, found yourself in a fairly conservative theological Christian community. How, How did that, how did it all come about? Yeah. Well, um, you know, there's like uh, various versions of that story, some very long and some very short. So I'll try to give you a, a middle ground. I uh, was, was born and raised in, in rural Idaho. My parents immigrated from India. My dad, for various reasons, found himself studying in India, uh, doing clinical psychology, uh, did his doctorate there, and then came to the States to practice uh, clinical psychology. And uh, ended up moving from India to from India to Kansas to Idaho. So um, <laughs> the b- bustling metropolises and and multicultural uh, centers of you know Omaha or wherever you know in in Kansas and then and then Nampa, Idaho. And so there was a very conservative uh, evangelical Christian kind of context that and Mormons and where I grew up. So my uh, I, I have an identical twin brother. And he, in high school, converted to Christianity through friend, a friend group and um, had a kind of radical conversion experience, actually. Uh, Pauline, uh, Damascus Road kind of stuff. And that was happening alongside of a significant process of, of trying to figure out my sense of religious identity, having been raised, you know, uh, born and raised in a Hindu household, by the time I was in high school, I, uh, my brother and I were both pretty well leaning towards uh, being atheists. He was much more kind of punk about it and, um, <laughs> you know, sort of uh, a quasi-Nietzschean. And I was much more sadly uh, anti-religious. That is to mm. say, I, I had a, I was deeply depressed in high school over questions about meaninglessness, meaninglessness in life and this kind of stuff. And so his conversion experience came at a time when I was searching significantly. And so I kind of latched on to his experience. So you didn't, you weren't averse to his decision. You were curious about it at the very least, it sounds like. Yeah, I was very curious. Um, I went to church with him and uh, with, uh, with, with him and his friends. And I ended up, we both ended up getting baptized at the same time, actually. Um, I, I, that sort of, I, I would say that I, I found myself gradually uh, immersed into the kind of Christian communities that, that, that he ended up finding his way into. And um, so when I got baptized, we both got baptized at the same time, I still didn't have a sense of, I didn't have a sense of, um, you know, uh, whether any of this stuff is real or not, uh, whether, how to think about it. But I, I kind of made a, a commitment to trying to work it out. And so 
So my Christian experience was very much a, a gradual finding my way, um, finding my way in a Christian identity. What what is what is Christianity about? What did I get myself into? That's kind of been the question that drove me towards theology. Is what did I get myself into at my baptism? I was imagining you as a kid in rural Idaho, who maybe looked different, whose family might have been different than a lot of the other folks you were around. Yeah. And I wondered whether questions occurred to you consciously or subconsciously, if those are indeed some of those questions that you're still exploring now in your work. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing. Like, um, for sure, we were the only Indian family in our city when I was growing up, like literally the only one. And there was a large immigrant uh, Hispanic population, but most it was predominantly white. Were you um, confused for being Hispanic at, at different points? Often, yeah. Yeah. But uh, oh, that, but the, the the by far the most common identification with uh, in my family misidentification was as uh, Arab. Oh. So you know, as you can imagine, because of uh, Middle East conflicts and things like that. We had a lot of, you know, my dad would get yelled at at the grocery store, you know, to go back to Iran or whatever, you know, right. Um, that kind of stuff. Um, but, it, uh, my experience, uh, growing up was one of profound, uh, struggle with alienation and belonging both in my family because of being first generation American born, you know, made for, um, difficulties in in relating to my parents experience mm. um, at the same time as uh, having a hard time breaking in to various kinds of social contexts um, um, and being ostracized in various contexts from, from the time I went to public school all the way up through high school you know from kindergarten through high school so my conversion to Christianity felt to me like like this, existential move of trying to find meaning in life and belonging that I had a such a struggle with growing up. Um, but I didn't think about it in social terms. I thought about it in primarily uh, in terms of, in terms of all the kind of my relationship to God kind of stuff in very evangelical terms, right. uh, traditional evangelical terms. It wasn't until a lot later that I started to, interrogate the social context within which all this happened. And, and so a lot of the work I do now is an is related to trying to make sense of my experiences entering into a Christian community. Yeah. I, I'm skipping ahead right now, but I, in reading a number of your papers, it looked like your examination of race and racism has, you, you dove deeper in, in recent years, as opposed to say your work at Yale, for example. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's been a more recent, um, I, I was talking to a friend about this uh, a few years ago because he was curious about why I, why I made the shift, you know, my earlier stuff. And when I, my dissertation and my first book is really about philosophical theology of religious experience type stuff and more in more definitively standard philosophy of religion type conversations about about the nature of experience and as God an object of experience and this kind of stuff. 
and religious epistemology type stuff um, that doesn't really get in much to, into social ethics or anything like that. And so the, the, the shift though, for me, uh, there's two, there's two aspects to it. One is that um, is pure accident, pure accident. And what I mean by that is when I, um, when I got to, uh, when I was at Yale, I started to get really interested in the Christian mystical tradition, a lot of my own questions about God's availability to us and unavailability to us. I, I started to filter through the language and the concepts that I was learning about from the mystical tradition and Christianity. And that was deeply in, important sort of turn for me. And I wanted to explore it. At the same time, I had become interested in, um, in questions about, about Christian social life that I wanted to work out with Miroslav Volf there, uh, having to do with what is the distinctive shape of Christian social life as opposed to life outside of Christian, you know, church context. And that had to do with my own disillusionment with, um, with the brand of conservative Christianity that I had been, had I experienced prior to, to coming to Yale. And so when I, when I got to, when I got to Duke, my, my, my thought was, I want to combine this experience stuff with this political theology, social stuff. And I think I want to work with Stanley Hauerwas and I want to work with a guy named Rom Coles who did, does uh, political theories, political scientist. And so I started pursuing that, but then Rom Coles decided to leave Duke. Oh. And, and I was like, oh, oh crap. Now what am I going to do? You know, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And then at the same time, Paul Griffiths was coming to Duke and um, Stanley Harwas said, hey, you ought, to, um, you ought to work with Paul because his, his intellectual style in terms of analytic stuff and whatever is much more like yours. And so you should work with him. So I said, okay. Yeah. Um, and, and I had also been talking to Jay Carter and um, uh, uh, he was on my matriculation committee. And, and the thing that he planted in my head, very my first day at Duke, he said, um, just recognize that whatever you end up working on is whether you like it or not, it's going to be autobiographical. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you can either be intentional and, and cognizant of that, or you can ignore it. Right. Um, and I actually ignored it. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Uh, I ignored it because um, uh, my, ex my experiences of, you know, uh, of white supremacy growing up in rural Idaho were very, very difficult and painful for me. Mm. It's sort of like a deep reservoir of, of pain uh, uh, um, that I didn't, I couldn't, you get too close to it and, and, and um, I just couldn't confront a lot of what was going on there. And Duke in some ways helped me um, by taking some courses with Willie and having a lot of conversations with Willie and Jay Carter and Willie Jennings. It helped me to um, to have some more conceptual tools and resources to think about that reservoir of of personal experience and difficulty. But I didn't know I, I wasn't prepared to use those tools on that to to examine my yeah. self. And then uh, so I did this other stuff instead. I did this uh, the questions I was legitimately interested in on religious experience and all that. Uh, but, but then when I got my first job, I went to, um, to, to work at Indiana Western University at this honors college in a humanities department. And this was the, like a super white place. I mean, in terms <laughs> of student body, it was like 99% white kids. You've been, you've been in a few of those regions, <laughs> Idaho, yeah, Indiana, North Carolina. <laughs> you know, 
in some ways Santa Barbara, but, but yeah, like, um, you know, so, but I found myself in a context where the, the very few students of color, some black students and some other students of color um, would find me and want to talk <laughs> about their experience. And I found myself so uh, empathetic with their experience because rural Indiana, where I was teaching, was just like bringing flashbacks to, to rural Idaho, where I tried to get out of there. Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so um, <laughs> you're like, yeah. you're like Michael Corleone in Godfather three. <laughs> Every time. You know, my father, uh, my father's experience was different than mine growing up as a Jew. I grew up among other Jews and Italians and, you know, kids that looked and sounded and felt just like me. But my father's experience, he, he had experienced many times when he walked into a room, hyper aware that he was the only Jew in the room. That yeah. didn't happen to me, ironically, until I became a Christian. I walked into mm. churches and, you know, listen, my experience um, is cert- I'm not going to measure it at the same as, as, you know, what friends, African-American friends are going through to this day, you know, but to hear someone start a sentence with, why do all you Jews dot, dot, yeah. dot, you know, fill in the blank. I'm like, do, uh, am I like the proxy for, yeah. you know, <laughs> exactly. yeah, I, I, but it became, I became a little bit more attuned and tried to listen a little bit more carefully to what my father's experience was or what my um, friends, you know, people of color, what their experience was, if for no other reason than just to be um, 1% more compassionate, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's also like, for, for me, the process, that process of having to relate to students and try to help them understand their experiences was part of a larger process for me by which everything, uh, and which started at Duke when I started um, reading and thinking more about, about race, about theory and social theory related to race and theological stuff related to race. It's when I started to see that a lot of what I took, what I have taken to be very idiosyncratic, just weird stuff about me, weird yeah. stuff about my hangups, my insecurities, my sense of, my senses of inadequacy for various reasons, my sense of my anger, my whatever it was. And to see that they weren't just, it wasn't just me. Right. It was like conformed to patterns of experience that was connected to social and institutional facts that uh, explained so much of what my inner life. And that blew my mind that knowing about a certain history, about knowing about a certain social structural features of life could actually give explanation to things that I always didn't could had no explanation for prior to that, you know? Yeah, I, I want to go back to an experience that you had in your theological formation that maybe help helps to contextualize what we're talking about now and and some some of the things that you're working on now. I saw <laughs> I saw in your bio that you have a Master of Divinity, aka MDiv, from Master Seminary, yeah. um, and I seem to remember that there was some point of dissension. I remember talking to Tommy about this actually. Um, you, you, you had a point of dissension on a core theological matter that led them to withholding the actual degree itself. And rather than just, you know, just say, okay, well, whatever that point might've been, okay, that's fine. I'll agree to that. Give me my master's. You said, no, I actually don't believe that. Do I remember that correctly? Uh, Yeah, that's, that's pretty well how it went down. I mean, so 
So it's actually, I do have, I do have my MDiv from Masters. I got the MDiv. Okay. I stayed, what happened was I went to, so I was in these, uh, got converted uh, to Christianity in college, my first year, of, well, end of high school, first year of college at Boise State. And I get, got funneled into these conservative evangelical churches where the pastors were graduates from Master's Seminary. So while I was working with youth ministry and stuff like that all during college, I got funneled to Master's by going to like winter classes to visit, you know, for a week or whatever with these pastors for continuing ed that they did. And I got exposed to the seminary that way. And all the questions and issues and things I wanted to work out theologically, and that finally made me say, I got to go to seminary. It was like not, it was a no brainer. I had, I got funneled right to master's. Okay. Uh, Because I didn't know of, I mean, I had been a Christian for a few years coming out of a religious tradition that didn't have this infrastructure of seminaries and theological education, you know, like Hinduism. I didn't know what it's not connected like that. Yeah. So, so the fact is that I didn't have any clue about higher education in Christianity, you know? And so all I knew is that my pastors went to this school. And so I'm like, here I go, I guess. Right. And by the time I got there, by the time I was there for my second year, I was like, where am I? Right. What is this place? I was the kind of person who, after I would go take a class, the first thing I would do was take the syllabus and all the reading lists in it, and I would go to the library, and I would start hunting down every piece of literature connected to the literature we read for the class until a map started to grow about, like, the scholarly literature in the topic area. And then I started wandering outside of the the sub-region where our institution was, this sort of theological, ideological you know, landscape got bigger for me. Right, right. Yeah, a student's um, tendency is, uh, or, or I guess, it, especially in that context, um, that flavor, if you will, of yeah. scholarship, uh, a student's tendency might be to hear the professor give a lecture on um, psychology, for example, yeah. and and just take sort of a bumper sticker level. Okay, well, the problem with psychology is it starts that the premise of it is this. And we know from the Bible that it's, it's wrong because of this. And then you have a whole kind of lens through which you're looking at psychology. You don't really even need to take a look at, <laughs> you know, the, yeah, yeah. The, but you, you took the time to actually look at those other scholars, see what they say and see if they were being presented accurately. Um, yeah. You know, just kind of yeah. really reckon with it. It sounds like. Yeah. The, and the problem with it really was that, um, I was also clueless about the politics of the place. And so I didn't know what the, the, the rules were, what lines you couldn't cross without, without getting punitive, you know, kind of consequences. So, so it was perfectly innocent for me. I, I would be reading this stuff and I would go to classes and I would be like, well, the, you know, how come the Masoretic text and the uh, Septuagint differ in their manuscript traditions and uh, how can you how how can we look at these differences and say that there isn't certain kind of editorial activity in Jeremiah for for example that requires us to like question certain aspects of the authorship and and to rethink how its composition or whatever in terms of a lot of the higher critical stuff and i i would ask a question and it would be almost like i just I, it, it felt like the equivalent of farting in an elevator <laughs> Like people just look at you and pretend you didn't say anything, you know, but you can see the distaste on their face, yeah. you know, yeah, that kind of thing. I was, I saw, 
reading your paper, uh, the Bible, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. You, you wrote a whole yeah. page. <laughs> I was, I couldn't help but think of masters. Like I, so yeah. earnest questions aren't necessarily welcome. Exactly. Exactly. And so I find myself getting myself in trouble in ways I didn't, hadn't intended to get myself in trouble. And by the time I was there in my second year, I knew this was going to be a problem. And I knew I'd, uh, but I had also started a THM degree. I, I did my MDiv and my THM. I, they overlapped because I finished most of my requirements for my MDiv early. And so I was wanting to get more into Hebrew Bible type stuff. And so I wanted to do a, a, a one-year advanced degree. And so they let me in a, a, a sort of early and let me overlap my requirements. And it's that THM degree that I didn't end up getting because I fulfilled all the course requirements. I was first draft thesis stage I got through um, by the time they, they ended up pushing me out over, you know, sort of doctrinal disagreements about about various things. I had tried to stay under the radar, but it just simply didn't work there. Yeah. Now, as uh, I've noticed in some of your recent work that you're you're speaking more sociologically. I don't know if that's a formal study of yours, but um, even from a avocational perspective, sociologically, is do you, do you see that that's emblematic of American evangelicalism more broadly, or is it unique to masters? That's a good question. I don't think it's that, and it's a difficult question because it's not, there are subcultures, there are evangelical subcultures, you know, and um, so there's family resemblances between various different kinds of evangelicals. And then there's various different ways of identifying, well, what counts as an evangelical and sociologically that, that, that doesn't necessarily track with um, what might count as evangelical if you're only asking theological questions about the Bible or personal relationship with Jesus or stuff like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. But sociological evangelicalism and evangelical movements in America predominantly white have certain kinds of homogeneity, certain kinds of connections to far right political causes and do exhibit some of the kinds of things that I've, that I've found to be true in in differing degrees and with differing responses. So for example, Fuller uh, Seminary is historically evangelical, sociologically it's it's kind uh, of connected up with evangelicalism, but, it's, but it has a kind of critical relationship to its own evangelical identity um, that Masters does not. And so the funny thing is when I went to Yale, I, I, I would tell people, uh, people would ask me, well, where, where'd you do your MDiv? And I would say, oh, it's a small, extremely quite fundamentalist uh, a seminary in Southern California. You've never heard of it. And they're like, no, try me, try me. I'm like, just trust me, you've never heard of this place. It's super fundamentalist, you know, whatever. And then, and then the, their first guest, they'd be like, super fundamentalist, Southern California. Oh, you mean Fuller? <laughs> wow. Full, are you serious? I would never I'm think serious. of Fuller that way. Yeah. And I was like, dude, you have no idea what you're talking about. If you, I mean, because Fuller's downright liberal. They're like socialist compared right? to. Right? That's what I'm, so this is what, this is what I'm getting at, Corey. It's not like, it's like evangelicalism is such a big, uh, complicated tangle of things yeah. sociologically that when you, that when somebody you say evangelical, depending on where they're situated to them, like masters is, a, is not, not different than Fuller. They're all part of that one block that you call yeah, it. Wow. You know I mean? Wow. Um, yeah. I just, I notice a, a tendency. Oh, you know what it was? So I, my, in my own formation, 
I went to uh, I went to Grace Baptist, which, you know, listen, I, I don't want to bag on on Grace Baptist. I love the church. I have great relationships there. Pastor Tom, uh, Tommy's dad yeah. um, was a, a terrific uh, mentor, you know, and a loving nuanced in his thinking. Wonderful. Um, but when I started even reading N.T. Wright, a couple things occurred at the same time. If I was caught reading <laughs> some of the folks <laughs> In my class, in my uh, the Bible study that we were going to, uh, eyebrows were definitely raised. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I was really intrigued because I think I started with Jesus and the victory of God before I got into um, what was the first one? Israel and the people of God. The New Testament and the people. Yeah. Um, but what occurred to me, number one, was just that Wright spent a good 150 pages just addressing other scholarship, interacting yeah. with other scholarship. This is probably second nature to you being a, you know, uh, an academic. But for me, it was, wow, he's really taking the time to understand others in his field, what's going on, I was, as well as the tradition and really articulate it accurately. Um, so that was number one. But number two, what occurred to me was that he was entering into this project, not having arrived at the answers yeah. that he, he want he. He didn't decide we have to come to this conclusion at the end. Right. He was risking the possibility that some of his fundamental beliefs would be significantly rocked. And I thought that that was pretty bold. And it wasn't something that I was necessarily seeing either in theology or in politics, for that matter. We right. already know that whatever the Democrats say, we're going to disagree or vice right. versa. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. And I, that's what, to be honest, that's what drew me to that dimension of academic uh, vocation is what drew me to wanting to to be an academic. It wasn't that I, it wasn't a career thing. It wasn't a. Um, it was simply, gee, I have these these big questions about about things that I think are important, and I don't know the answer to them, and I want to find out. So what should I do? And um, I'm so pathological about about needing to pursue the inquiry that it that it has to be a full time job, otherwise I wouldn't I wouldn't know what else to do with myself, you know. But at Masters, that didn't work like that. Mm. It was exactly as you're describing. It's um, you have to know the answer in advance. A literature review isn't in the cards. A literature review is simply a way of, of marking out who's on our team and who's on their team. That's wow. what a literature review is for them. And then you just defend your team. Yeah. And that's pretty much it. And that does resemble, you're right to say, has a, is a significant resemblance with the way politics works in, in, in a partisan context like our. Yeah. Like Anti-partisanship as a, as a political philosophy. Um, so just out of curious, before I move on, cause there's, there's some subjects I really want to dive into here. How, how did you end up, or how did masters end up negotiating their giving the, the, the master's degree? Yeah. So I, I fin ended up finishing all the requirements requirements for my MDiv and the MDiv, um, the trouble I got in. So by the time I was finishing my MDiv, I was um, one of the reasons I turned my energy towards uh, Hebrew Bible type stuff is because I it was it was something I was genuinely interested in that I didn't think would court all the controversy as all the theological topics I, I was confused about. You know, so there's a difference between arguing over dispensationalism with somebody, you know, over like some theological or about about like, uh, um, you know, the continuation of spiritual gifts and stuff like that, where you could really get yourself into big trouble at Masters or, or women in ministry where you could get Ooh, yourself in huge trouble. That's a big one. <laughs> yeah. 
um, versus you know the modal parameter in the in the verbal system. You know, <laughs> like I, I thought to myself, can I really get myself in trouble because I take a uh, because I'm interested in the temporal features of modality in in the <laughs> verb system? You know, <laughs> I'm imagining a poker game. Like I'll take your dispensationalism and I'll raise. <laughs> But guess what? I did get in trouble doing that stuff. Oh my gosh. <laughs> because, because then the, the issue became, look, you're using modern linguistics to do this work. And that's like evil because of the philosophy of people who don't believe in the special nature of Hebrew language or whatever and see it as general in relationship to, oh, you know, man. this kind of stuff. And, and, because it, and because your conclusions are violating what we, you know, learned from all these other sources that we already believe. And so um, I finished my MDiv okay because because the requirements you could complete without without uh, like a thesis project and an advisor and that kind of thing. Whereas yeah. the THM, I had to have a, a THM committee. I had to have a thesis I was working on, and so it was it, I could be targeted. I think the MDiv at Masters, what it did was it with at least one one or two professors in particular, it marked me out as a target. We got to fix this guy. Oh, He's, right. We got to fix this guy. And then the the THM became the the program that was more focused in which they could fix me. And they when they they realized they couldn't fix me, then they sort of kicked me to the curb. That's a yeah, it's an evangelical impulse in a way. Uh, but uh, anyway, not not to dwell too much on on masters. Um, I, I'm going to try to get a couple of my buddies who are still teaching there on, so that they can have their <laughs> they can have their say and tell us how where we've gone wrong. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm no bones about it. It's a toxic, toxic place that I think is in some, at least in the current context, criminally negligent when it comes to um, the way that they treat people, their, their own employees, students, um, and under COVID conditions, the awful things have been going on there oh, wow. um, in terms of their relationship to, to protocols and stuff. So it's a, it's just a, a toxic environment. Wow. You know, maybe that's worth a whole other um, it, podcast, but uh yeah, I, I, I can see where that, that might happen, but I, I haven't really thought too much about this, uh, at least for a while. So I don't want to get myself into more trouble than I already am in. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, just, uh, gosh, it, whatever. Um, <laughs> this, okay. Yeah, this is a black hole. You're right to see it. Let's, you know, edge away, edge away from it. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So in your paper, Willie Jennings on the supersessionist pathology of race, a differential diagnosis. Um, you summarize Willie Jennings argument about the origin and continuation of contemporary Christian and secular racism. It has to do with distorted notions. This is how you're, you're articulating Willie's argument. Uh, it has to do with distorted notions of peoplehood and group belonging. Uh, more specifically, Jennings diagnoses the source of this diseased Christian social imagination is our implicit and explicit collective acceptance of supersessionism, which is the view that one people, Christians, have in some way superseded, replaced, or supplanted another, Israel, as God's chosen race to bring salvation to the world. Uh, but you say Jennings' argument isn't sufficiently specific to properly assess it. I heard you say on a podcast too, a kind of piggybacked on this, that Europeans came to understand themselves as white in the process of identifying other peoples as not white. Yeah. So how would you 
more specifically diagnose the origins of contemporary Christian and secular racism? Yeah. So this is a um, this is such a a, a complicated question. Oh, so um, you can't answer in fifteen seconds or less? <laughs> no, how we go. Uh, <laughs> Because uh, it has to do with the genealogy of, of social identity. Uh, and what I mean by that is uh, social groups are, are uh, made, not born. Uh, you know, so uh, the, the, a starting point for thinking about what races are, what race is as a category, is to think in terms of a historical process, uh, a historical process by which people came to understand themselves in a certain way and relate to uh, other people's on the basis of that understanding of themselves. And um, whiteness is like this. So whiteness is not the, I mean, a starting point for talking about this stuff is to recognize that what it is to be white is not uh, a description, not a simple description of, uh, of melanin content. You know, what, what, what whiteness is, is much more like an ideology. It's much more like a way of understanding what makes you and other people who look like you, the kind of people you are, so it, it comes with a theory of, of descent and group belonging and um, a theory of, of kinship and all kinds of things. It comes with all kinds of concepts about, about what peoples are and, and how to group them and how, those, and how groups relate to one another. Um, and it takes time to build these up, these ways of thinking about ourselves as a group. And so the question that a lot of historians, as well as sociologists of religion and sociologists um, more broadly of sociologists of race, a lot of the work that they try to do is to ask, well, when when did these ideas of of group identity start to form? Where did they where did people start to think of themselves as white? When does the language of whiteness sort of become a, a, a thing? You know. And so in this whole liter this whole literature about about uh, tracing the history, most of it centers in the um, Christian colonization, early modern Christian colonization of the world. So European, Western European colonization uh, of various non-European places uh, that, that, that's part of Christian missionary activity. That's part of um, European political bodies that think of their identity as Christian in, in relationship to their European identity. And that come to to relate to non-European peoples by using the language of race and inventing the language of race and developing the language of race to mark the distinction between them, European Christian people and non-European non-Christian people. So the religious, national, ethnic stuff is tied to the, 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 the birth of race talk. And, and a lot of people tie that to the 16th century or the, you know, 14th, even as early as the 15th, 14th century. But what Willie does is he wants to, to, to ask the question, where, where did that impulse to tie one's Christian identity to one's uh, ethnic identity as European and the identification of one's European and Christianness as white mm. Where did, where did that impulse come from, the, the, that dynamic of wanting to see those things as part of one social group identity? Where did that come from? And he wants to say where it came from was an impulse to identify oneself in relationship to others that you can find in the supersessionist impulse of Christian tradition, the impulse of Christians wanting to relate themselves over and against 
Jews right. um, as Christian. And so anti-Semitism and the birth of anti-Semitism from early Christianity becomes the race, the, the proto-racist impulse of Christianity that flowers into racism, full-blown racism of whiteness versus non-whiteness um, by the time you get to the early modern period. So that's a, a rough summary of how the, the logic of that works for in somebody like Willie's stuff. Right, right. So a related question, with Christian theology, would you say that it was part of the origin of racism or more of a tool used in the justification of various forms of racism? Yeah, so this is the, uh, so what I just said, all of that, that, that kind of story about the intertwining of Christian identity with uh, Western European identity and then Western European identity as uh, working itself out as we're white, right? Yeah. That that whole process, that's a, a broadly acknowledged thing. Like historians, sociologists, religious studies, well, people, the, they've been saying that all people, they've been saying that for a long time. The short The shorthand version is just referring back to Constantine. When Constantine yeah. became a Christian, then it meant that it was more of, um, you know, it... Christianity was, you know, shoulder to shoulder with uh, other positions of power, uh, yeah. you know, and then and then it turned non-Christian Jews into non-white in, in a way. I don't know if I'm if my terminology is right, but yeah, something like that. And so but the question. So whereas that's a widely acknowledged story narrative that's been, you know, explored in various ways by different scholars of you know, um, religion and of um, and of race. What um, the, a question that arises is, is what role is Christianity playing in that story? Is it a is it a cart or is it the horse? Right. Is it is it that and this is what I, how I understand your justification question is, is it that there are these other impulses that are more nationalistic or whatever and they're or economic and they're driving the train? And, and they're using religious the religious identity as a convenient uh, a convenient source of justification for for the emergence and development of racism, or is it that they have a theology that's driving the bus and a Christian identity that's driving the bus? The unique contribution of somebody like Willie's stuff is to suggest that Christianity is the is the is the engine or the driver or the horse, not just the cart. It's not mm. just a justification. It actually is doing its own work in producing, generating, shaping, uh, articulating uh, race and race, uh, racial identity and racism um, and racial order in ways that um, that can't be explained in purely other terms, uh, like the economic or political or anything like that. Right, right. And I think that's right. Um, I agree with him about that. The question then, though, and the, and the hard question is exactly how do we define the the role Christianity is playing, what uh, and and Christian theology is playing. What work is Christian theology doing to to create racial identity categories and to to um to perpetuate them and to shape them the way that we find them being shaped historically, and and today, um and that's where the devil is in the details on that stuff, trying to figure out what role Christianity is exactly playing. And that's where I, I in some ways would depart from the way that Willie uh, accounts for Christian theological shaping of race and race talk. Yeah, so so that's the, the paper you mentioned is an attempt to say, 
look, here's some, here's some, let's start with thinking about different theories of um, what races are and what racial group identity is. On different theories about that, we would be saying something different about the kind of role Christianity might be playing and not playing. It seems it is complicated to answer because for every individual that identifies as a Christian, it might be a different answer. Yeah. So, I mean, individually it might be, uh, you could think about the individual level, but there's also the, um, there's also just the fact that it's complicated because, um, because Christianity is so complicated. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, like um, that is to say, you know, it's difficult to, to, um, to name any one, any one driver of uh, some social impulse uh, historically, because there's always so many different actors and groups and interactions that give rise to the, the way anything actually gets shaped today that um, it's hard to trace it out. So to use a very, it might still be too raw to really talk about objectively, but did you see that video of the insurrectionists, the, the, the guys who attacked the Capitol? Yeah, I did. And then there was the one moment in the house chambers where they stopped and they prayed, Um, you know, they're, they're invoking the name of Jesus and ah, gosh, I had so many mixed emotions because there was a part of me that I was almost sympathetic because it was, it was, it was not that I would sympathize with their cause or their actions, but what was clear to me is that some of the individuals that you saw praying really believed in the earnestness of their prayer. Yeah. So I, I'm curious, you know, what, what some of your reactions are as you, as you saw that. Yeah. Well, um, it's a, um, uh, w- w- one of the reactions that I did not have is that I was not surprised. Yeah. As a lot of people were, were surprised. I didn't have, uh, I was disgusted. A lot of people were disgusted and I share that, you know, kind of emotion. But Christian, white Christian nationalism is not a side project in American life. In some ways, it is the project of mm. America. <laughs> yeah. you know? And because, because that's the case, you have to be able to understand things like what happened um, as you know, some extreme, extreme and extremist um, expressions of, some, of a much more common and ubiquitous feature of the DNA of American social and political life, which is white supremacy. Yeah. You know, and not just white supremacy, but but also civil religion. Um, that is to say, the the deep ties between Christianity and American political discourse, because one maybe unexpected reaction uh, I've ha- I had to the um, is to see a um, the deep connections between what we heard in Biden's inauguration ceremony and the Capitol uh, events you're describing. In what way? The difference between the the difference between the two has to do with a lot with the uh, with the theology behind it, like a theology of what does God's vision for human flourishing require of us politically. That that's pretty different, you know, across the two. That on the one hand, it requires a you know a kind of um, for in the cap for the capital uh, types, it, it requires a a uh, nativist kind of you know, um, return to to tr- a traditional time in which you have clear uh, what white dominance in in um, our social life, and you have certain kinds of um, coercive policies of 
uh, reestablishing the kinds of, you know, racist, sexist, uh, uh, xenophobic uh, vision that that we all can look at and not like. So that's different. Then you don't you're not getting it in. The, you're getting in some ways the opposite of that in the inauguration ceremony. But both of them are appeals to a, a Christian social vision, a Christian social vision, a Christian way of thinking about people and the way that they belong and who's in and who's out. And a Christian vision of eschatology, that is, what does God want to bring about for humanity in the future, right? And an attempt to identify the project of America with the project of bringing about God's will for human belonging. Mm. Right. So the way that we articulate that story will affect the way that we live out our supposed beliefs, our supposed Christianity, if you will. Yeah. So both of them were civil religion. We're like, um, they were, they're both expressions of the same assumption that the proper social object, the proper social group to apply God's promises of community, of human community, is America and an American political mm. life. We are the, we're still the, we're still the city on the hill. Yeah. We're still the light to the nations. We're still the, right, the, um, the example and the steward of a, a universal vision of human flourishing and belonging. That's what America is in both pictures. And that itself is dangerous, whether you like the, the, the political vision, the eschatological vision, or whether you don't like it, it's still dangerous to identify that vision with this nation and its uh, identity. I keep on thinking of a picture Tommy used in one of his papers. It was a picture, uh, a drawing of Columbus um, as he arrived on the continent, perhaps for the first time. And there's an indigenous person next to him or, or uh, beneath him, basically, uh, on the ground. Um, and in one hand, Columbus is holding a sword. In another hand, he's holding the Bible. In the background, there's the ship. Yeah. Um, he represents all that is good, power, uh, technology, and money with the ship. Um, and the Bible, you know, he's, he's there um, by, you know, God brought him there. Uh, and he's justified because uh, he knows that God has blessed it. You know, that's, it represents all that. And he's there to dispense the goodness to this, um, uh, this native person who just doesn't know any better. And to the extent that they can um, adapt to what we know, <laughs> you know, what yeah. we know is good and powerful and right and rich and all this, this good stuff. Uh, yeah, they're, they're cool. But uh, otherwise, they're just, you know, these cannibal, you know, right. just just a, a little above beasts. Yeah. Uh, if, right. So exactly. there's another uh, comparison that I was thinking of, and it was that prayer in the house chambers um, compared to something that I found very encouraging. But I wonder I wonder if it's a similar impulse that just has a different costume. But one of my biggest issues is. Um, I'm, I'm thoroughly encouraged by uh, the Problem Solvers Caucus in the House, for example. Whenever I can get, whenever I see a, a couple different folks from various parties or persuasions um, doing something in collaboration, and one of those over the last few days, one of the most encouraging moments was the morning of the inauguration when Biden and McConnell started the day by going to church together. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and yet I, I, 
it's still, I still can't get my head around those who just, no, he's not a Christian. He couldn't be a Christian. There's right. no way he's a Christian. You know, right. I, like, I don't, I don't get that thinking. It just doesn't, I wish I could even sympathize with it a little bit just to understand it a little bit better, but I, I can't even get that far. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, it's troubling because I think we can, we can distinguish two different, two different questions. One is um, to the, the um, which I think is very much less helpful. The question is, is this person a Christian or not a Christian? If somebody professes to be a Christian and um, somebody's Christian profession we have no reason to believe that it's disingenuous and from the from you know the person's other features of the person's life then then we shouldn't we shouldn't quibble over whether we can call this person a christian or not or or withhold it as if we're some kind of arbiter of who who's in and who's out that's that itself is problematic thing position to take up to take that role there's that question but then there's also the question is what does their christianity demand of them what mm. does what what does christian commitment demand of us so if you know, if I have every reason to believe that um, somebody's Christian profession is in all sincerity and I should take them at their word, then I can ask the question, well, what does that require of them? And that's the harder question. <laughs> to right. Right. And, and the question about like civil religion or the question that, you know, that I say that I and this is some extent to which I still am like have a deeply Harwassian bones in my body is to worry about this about this conflation, about the who the we might be, the the we we the people, uh, the we the we American society is not the we uh, necessarily we the church we Christians we, but when you take those two things and you think of them as the same group, then then you're making a, a catastrophic mistake. That's what I'm suggesting. What Stanley would suggest, and so what what we have to ask is then. What is what what is uh, one's being a Christian and uh, being in political leadership? What end of them? What is their responsibility and obligation as a result? And um, and that's that's a much harder question to answer, I think. Yeah, I I, I think of it. Maybe it's myopic of me to think of it this way, but in per- personal terms, when I first became a Christian, um, part of the line of conversation between me and my dad, because um, he just threw everything at me, <laughs> you know, and, and part of those wasn't just uh, discussions. They were like chapters of many discussions. <laughs> um, well, what about the, uh, what about the crusaders? What about the inquisition? Yeah, right. And it just was clearly not a sufficient answer for me to say, well, they weren't real Christians, you know, right. but, but right. also today, like in, in real time, I've shared a story on, on this program about sitting next to a gal who found out I was going to church the next morning. I, I just had to leave a poker game early and talk about an inquisition. I, I was being, I was under fire fe- feeling like I had to defend Trump and Trump supporters. And like, wh- how, how did you make that connection? And how did you, that's not, that's not an argument. That's not turf. I'd want to defend, let alone explain, you know, so, so it has real, day-to-day consequences. Being a Christian means that somehow I'm associated with these dudes that were praying fervently in the house chambers. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the ability to disavow, I mean, yeah, it's a difficult thing, right? Because when you say that you're, uh, up to, I mean, this is one of the things I, I really appreciate about Tommy, uh, uh, Tommy's work is that when you say you're a Christian, 
what Tommy wants to emphasize and we in his book, and we the people, just a plug for Tommy's book, um, is 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 more than to die with an ideology. It's not just to say, here are some concepts that I subscribe to. And since uh, and and what it means to be a Christian is to subscribe to these and to think of a certain pattern of behavior is consistent with it. So if you don't f- believe the right concepts and have the right behavior, then I can actually cut you out of that identity, mm, that identification, yeah. right? So who's a Christian? Who's not a Christian? Well, oh, whoever here, here's my preferred list. And you know, whoever doesn't check the, those boxes, they, they're not really a Christian. Right. And what Tommy wants right. to point to is the, um, the social historical geographical connections that are, that are bound up with being uh, uh, having this identity, a, a religious Christian religious identity. So you can't just decide by doing some work in your brain who, who, who really is a Christian and who isn't. You actually have to look at material time and space. And you have to look at, at, at um, the progression of a people over time in, t- in time and space so that um, you can find that people are Christians who you wish weren't. right and then start to reckon with that that's the work by fiat say nope they're not nope they're not and that and this is the thing that sometimes gets me in trouble when i talk about messy and christian evangelicalism the thought is that i'm somehow trying to say evangelicals white evangelicals really christians or that their christianity itself is evil or something like that but that's not the point at all the point is to say that christianity Christianity is what it is, whether you like it or not, and it ain't good, right? And so us who are committed to Christianity and who are Christians, it falls to us to um, take whatever it is that we see as faithfulness to Christian confession and to try to impact Christianity as it actually is to, to reform it towards something that it ought to be in real space and time rather than just simply do some mental exercises so that what we're left is, is anything that's a good, anything that I like and is good. That's real Christianity. Anything that isn't is not real Christianity. And so I, I didn't have to go change anything in the world. I just had to put down some conditions in my, I made Christianity. I reformed it. I made it great. Mm. You know what I mean? (laughs) Make Christianity great again. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of which in your article, Uh, In the conversation in August, you're responding to Trump's assertion that if Biden were elected, he would hurt the Bible, hurt God. Uh, (laughs) You say um, on erasing religion from the public sphere, God speaks through the mouth of the Hebrew Bible prophet. I hate I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are are a stench to me. God despises these festivals because the people are, in God's views, unjust. You go on. God exhorts people to let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never falling stream. Harming God is not the same as removing religion from the public sphere. Indeed, being unjust would be a greater harm. So, <laughs> yeah, we, we already talked about this. I, I, as I was reading that article, I was wondering what you're, you know, what you were seeing as you saw the attack on the Capitol. It got me thinking about heresy and shared narratives and, and you've already spoken to this a bit but maybe I, I i'd like you to speak to it a little bit more how can we as a country 
be living in the same time and same place, relatively speaking, yet have such different narratives? Yeah, that's such a hard question. If I if I uh, had a gr- really good answer to that question, then um, I would probably you know be able to to actually change something in the the political climate that I that I feel hopeless and despair about myself for the very reason you're naming. I, there the um, because when it comes to our um, people we love in our families in our social context in our churches um, the division that exists between very different ways of reading the same events the same political culture um, and giving two two or more many different diametrically opposed stories about what's going on and what matters and what we should do um, is is a phenomenon that is more prominent now than I've than I've ever known it to be in my in my lifetime. Um, and I think that the explanation for is not just about stories, it's about the social context in which stories are told. Mm. So there it's, there's a difference between sometimes when we talk about uh, disagreement between narratives, we, we focus a lot on the narrative, the content of the narratives. What story are you telling? What story am I telling? And then we compare them and then we say, well, look, which story better accords with various facts and what does this story leave out and what does this story leave out? And we try to try to bring, you know, get some conversation going between stories by by fact checking them and this kind of stuff. And, and, and it and turns out to not be very useful because um, because it's always possible for somebody to reject the other person's fact checking yeah. because they have a story about why the fact checking is not any good. Right. Well, that's from the Washington post. You can't trust the Washington post. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so you can use the, the despair comes from the fact that there's a, there's an insulated, uh, insulated kind of built-in mechanism for the story to never have to, to never have to um, face any friction <laughs> outside of it. Never, um, and that has to do with the context in which story, the story is told, and it has to do with not with the with the content of a story, but with the um, with how it's regulated in a community, and it's um, how it's regulated by by people and, and authority figures, and and how it's reinforced socially, such that quest, certain kinds of questioning of stories is is punished, and certain kinds of loyalty and faithfulness to the story is rewarded. And so I think that um, that matters, paying attention to the rewards and punishments of storytelling and the capacity for self-reflection, self-criticism and the opening of the opening of vulnerability of oneself to the possibility of being wrong. Yeah. And things like that and virtues, intellectual virtues of uh, having to do with humility and and openness, those kinds of things are are more important than trying to knock holes in the other story, per se. Yeah, I have a, a, a rule on social media that I don't engage with folks that I don't have any prior relationship with. Yeah, um, I, I, doing this, I might have to augment those rules, but if I do, I might have to establish some commonality first. Is yeah. there some point of reference? Is there some overlap? Is there some agreed upon? Okay, we both agree that whatever, you know, just larger context. 
um, to your point, we have to figure out how to live together. You know, yeah. we have to figure out how to be neighbors. But if we can't agree upon that and you, you don't want to live together and you just want me dead. OK, well, we, we don't have much business to do together, you know, but if we can agree on some basics, then the way I, I think of it is um, it's kind of like uh, when I was first learning about apologetics and evangelism. There were some who felt that, well, here's how you get somebody from atheist to born again Christian in one conversation. <laughs> I never quite bought into that, but some people yeah. just felt, you know, um, or, or at least they're, you know, they, they had many success stories. Yeah. Um, but, but my approach has always been much more relational, you know, in that I, I can't necessarily get somebody from atheist or adversary to best friend in one conversation, but I can work in degrees, you know? Yeah. Um, but there's a danger there. If you see it as a danger, I see it as a benefit is that, as that person is coming one degree closer to me, I'm getting one degree closer to them. Not to say that I'm going to become an atheist in one conversation or even a hundred, but my view of God and God's story and what God's doing in the world or what yeah. my place in God's story is might be that much more nuanced because of my relationship with a thoughtful atheist yeah. friend. You, you know? know, there's actually two, two scholars that come to mind um, whose work I've been interested in for this very reason um, one is uh, Laurie Paul, who's a, a philosopher at Yale who works on transformative experiences. And that's the idea of, and one of the things that she's interested in is conversion experiences. And particularly the, the idea that it may not, it's not always, an, uh, we shouldn't presume it's always a um, clearly rational thing to do to open yourself up to other stories and narratives because of the exactly the risk of becoming a kind of person that you don't want to become simply through one's openness. Yeah. And uh, so there's a lot of puzzles and interesting questions about how, about that um, and about how to, to navigate that. And then the other one is Paul Bloom has a, a book on it. I trying to remember what it was. It's about the, it's about against empathy. <laughs> and it's this, and you're like, wait a second. And he, but he advocates for what he calls rational compassion. Um, as opposed to empathy and being, as opposed to what he thinks of being uncritically empathetic. And it, it's for this very reason that uh, empathy is, uh, and, and what you're talking about too in this apologetics context is a double, double-edged sword here. And so um, that's not, so it's not a yes or no, should we not be empathetic or should we not? It's rather that it's a, a space to, that we take up or a stance that we take up that itself requires some critical reflection about that, about how we, how to do that the right way. And, and sometimes I think when it comes to, there's an Atlantic article that recently came out too about, um, it's comparing the uh, US context to the, the Protestant Catholic stuff in Ireland. Okay. And um, it says basically, look, what they realized eventually that they had to live together. And because they had to live together, they got to figure out how to do it and without killing each other. Yeah. And they didn't do it by figuring out they all, they all had to be best friends or they all had to agree with each other, but they did have to figure out how to do shared projects. Yeah. And sometimes figuring out how to be involved in shared projects apart from even coexisting with massive disagreements, but just having shared projects that force you into shared goals. Yeah. Maybe that, maybe that's the only way forward, you know? One of my favorite stories over the last year or so, uh, I, I think I saw this on CBS Sunday morning. Palestinians and Israelis had a shared project 
it was shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they 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 had to fi- they they had to work in both territories in order to build an effective sewer system. I just thought that was so poetic. That was beautiful. <laughs> yeah, so, shit together. Yeah, um, getting their shit together. But okay, so let me just ask you. You have a couple of book projects coming up. One is from story to doctrine. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay. Uh, from story to doctrine is uh, really it's based on the intro to Christian doctrine course, the undergrad course I teach um, uh, at Westmont. And um, uh, the way it came about was when I had first had to teach theology, I was like, okay, I got to do intro to theology. I've never taught it before. And it's systematics, you know, so doctrine of God, doctrine of sin, salvation, all the, all the topics. Yeah. And then, but it, what made it, it made me think when I was going to teach it is like, why, why do we teach this this way? And how does that, how does it relate to the Bible? And um, the, the, the main problem I've always had teaching theology is that students who learn theology, they, they end up having two different discourses in their head. One is a bunch of stories about script, biblical stories. And then one is a set of like theories about what God, divine attributes and the atonement and things like this. And those two discourses don't don't connect in yeah. any way. There's no bridge between them. It's, and so if you ask, well, how do these discourses relate? Doctrinal theories, biblical stories. Most people got no idea, no principled way of understanding the relationship between those two things. And then that, that's at the level of the average person, Christian person. At the in the academy, it's it's actually theological academy. There's all these battles too between people who think that you could do biblical theology, people you think you can't, people who uh, think that that systematics, um, uh, the the project of systematics, uh, incorporates the Bible in various kinds of ways that uh, other people completely disagree with. So this book is a. Uh, Narrative theology, people who think that like Hans Frey and this whole post-liberal stuff in thinking about the Bible as story or theology as story, but then that they don't they don't uh, have much traction in traditional doctrinal theorizing, systematic or dogmatic theological theorizing. So what this book is an attempt to do uh, is to is to show how the discourses of narrative and Bible reading and a way of thinking about scripture as, as story, uh, how to think about that and how to build a bridge from that to show how you can do systematic theological theorizing on the basis of storytelling and to defend that and to perform it, to say, here's how that would work. And um, so that's basically what it is. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking a little bit about uh, someone who I became friendly with years ago, Kevin Van Hooser. And this, this really, it, it, my conversations with him and then ultimately reading his book when he did publish it, I met him when he was preparing that book. I think it's called the drama of doctrine or something like that. Doctrine. That's right. Yeah. Um, But totally oversimplifying it, but basically I understood his project to be about the, the, the notion that the Bible is a story that's still being written and we're in it. So yeah. some of the more, uh, a lot of the other stuff that I was reading at the time, I was reading a lot of Yoder at the time, I was reading right, right at that time. So yeah. then I began to place myself in that story properly. What is that story? And it's basically, you know, God created the heavens and the earth. It got messed up and, you know, we're, we're a part of this redemption project, whether it's me and my Jewish roots, you know, the people of Israel, or now me and my theological roots as a, as a Christian around the person, you know, the, the Messiah, uh, Jesus as a Messiah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it made sense to me. It was something that, you know, that I could hang my hat on, hang my, hang my yeah. theological, 
Yeah. And you know what? I'm interested in, in that kind of project of Kevin's and I disagree with some of the way he thinks about narrative in certain ways or whatever. And then, uh, but, but for the most part, I'm really sympathetic to the work he does. Um, I'm also interested though, in asking the question, what does that story have to do with, um, or how does it, how do, how do we derive from it the ways of thinking and talking about God that we have in a lot of Orthodox Christian tradition about like the Trinity or um, the atonement or, and, and those kinds of um, patterns of thinking, how do those things relate to each other? So that's a lot of what happens in the book. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be fun to, uh, I can't wait for it to come out. I had some other questions, but I think we've covered a lot of ground here. I was going to ask you about how, if you listen to the inauguration and how, um, how you felt that compared to the one four years ago, the American carnage versus, Oh gosh. Yeah. yeah you know <laughs> what we heard a couple of days ago. Yeah. I would say that the, um, the, the difference is something that we should find in, encouraging in a lot of ways. That is to say, at the same time, I'm really down on, um, uh, you could kind of tell from earlier, I have these criticisms about the civil religious dimensions of the displays we find in inauguration ceremonies. They end up re-performing exactly the kinds of identification of the American project with a, with a Christian project that I think is worrying. But at the same time, the details matter as to what kind of project, you know, you can make a mistake in a better way, in a worse way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and this is a definitely preferable way to make that mistake. Um, so I don't want to make this, make, make it sound like the two are equivalent. And so if you're going to make that mistake, you might as well have a vision of, uh, of human being together that involves uh, reconciliation, that involves economic and social justice, that involves, you know, uh, policies that benefit the most, uh, the, the least advantaged among us and that kind of thing. And I think he, the problem is that that rhetoric is not going to be likely mat, matched with policy to, to a huge extent. And what I mean by that is that, yeah, it, it signals some good changes, social ch changes that I advocate, but what's not going to change is American military presence in the world. Hmm. What's not going to change is a fundamentally an, econo an economic structure that's fundamentally beholden to large corporate interests. You know, that's not going to basically or fundamentally change. Yeah. And um, so the stratification of social life in America uh, is still going to be what it is through this administration. And yeah. so it's to require all the criticism that, that Christians should have of it. Um, even if we like the, the rhetoric better. Right. Right. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Like I said, it's a matter of degrees. We can't, uh, you know, I don't expect a, a president to mean the uh, inauguration of the next Messiah. So <laughs> we don't need to be confused about that. Last question. Do you have any questions okay. for me? Yeah, I, I, I do have one. What is your, so, you know, when you, when you start a podcast called Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, uh, which is surprisingly um, getting harder to do. Yeah. That is to say, it starts off as a kind of like, rhetorically as a kind of exaggeration. Oh, well, of course, we're not killing each other with this stuff. Right. Okay, more plausible. Yeah, maybe we are. Um, what, what, do you, what, what do you expect to, uh, to produce, to do by way of this whole podcast? So, yeah, this idea of a matter of degrees seems to be a theme, but at least as far back as the introduction of Sarah Palin to the country, mm -hmm. I recognized that 
one of the greatest issues was not an issue per se. It wasn't a policy per se. It was how, how we were thinking of each other, categorizing each other. If someone happened to have a D before their name and R or an R before their name. Mm -hmm. And it was, I mean, social media was coming into prominence at that time as well. And it's only congealed in, in, in a lot of ways, um, much, much worse. Things have gotten much, much worse. So what I hope to achieve is to occupy some space that there are some other media entities that are doing this and doing this really well. I think I, I really admire what folks like uh, Charlie Sykes and his whole team at the Bulwark is doing uh, with David French and Sarah Ilger um, and their team uh, at the dispatcher doing um, occupy some space for some independent thought, occupy mm-hmm. some space that you could imagine Ben Sass and Joe Manchin occupying together, oh, wow. you know, yeah, yeah. Um, occupy some space that you could imagine. There's a fellow Republican house representatives, Meyer. I think he's a freshman congressman and um, the gal who lost in our district, Christy Smith. Uh, okay. they, they can do work together, um, you know, or, or just my neighbor, you know, I, I have a neighbor, um, He's originally from Italy and he's a big Trump supporter, but we see each other. He's walking his dog, Bella, every morning and he's Pete. He's my buddy, you know, but if we saw each other online and all I knew about him was he's a Trump supporter. uh, I don't know. Maybe we'd be mortal enemies, but Pete and, you know, like that's what I'm trying to do. And I'm I'm trying to expose my friends. And and if this audience grows a little bit larger um, to the idea that I can have a conversation with a Republican senator last week. Uh, who, uh, somebody I consider a friend, Scott Wilk, mm. um, and uh, Amy Laura, who, you know, she has very strong, or, or my high school friend, uh, Kim, who, who came on the show a couple weeks ago. She's has good reasoning behind some positions that I consider them strong, well thought out, mm. some of which I happen to disagree with, you know, but the idea that we can actually have those conversations and not kill each other, not only not kill each other, but uh, enhance each other's lives in yeah. a way, you know, that that's what I'm trying to achieve. Well, aim. I mean, I think that one of the things that belongs to that is to recognize that, um, that we're called to love our enemies, but that doesn't mean that we don't have enemies. And I think that, that those are distinct. So I can, I mean, it's almost, there's a transformative kind of um, space to imagine, to, to start to try to imagine when you think about the fact that we can, that it's okay to have political enemies and we can have political enemies and we can name them as political enemies and still try to figure out what it might mean to think about what, what enemies deserve. <laughs> well, enemies, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, uh, maybe a simpler way to put it is I, I don't think that we're going to erase disagreements. In fact, I don't think that would be particularly productive. No, what no. I do think would be immensely productive is if we relearn how to disagree well, Yeah. yeah exactly. you know, amen. Yeah. Well, I appreciate, I appreciate you and I appreciate this conversation. So thanks for inviting me to it. I really appreciate you taking the time and let's, um, let's do it again soon. I, I don't necessarily have to be doing a podcast, but to, to hang out with you, I hope, uh, cause yeah. I just enjoy hanging out with you. <laughs> Likewise. Likewise. Um, and, uh, so yeah, let's definitely find some time to do that. We should get together with Tommy. We got all of us to hang out. That'd be cool. That'd be cool. Have a beer. Maybe we can, when things open up, come up to Santa Barbara. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I would actually really love to meet your dad. 
Yeah, yeah. He was supposed to be on today, but he flew up to San San Francisco for my niece's uh, thing. So uh, nah, ho- hopefully next time he'll he'd happily come up. I, he'd be yeah, he'd be happy as a pig and shit, as he would say. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. <laughs>